välkomna till internationell författarscen. Jag heter Ida Linde. Och jag heter Athena Farrosad. Och vi är programansvariga för litteraturen på Kulturhuset Stadsteatern. Alldeles strax ska ni få höra författaren Joyce Carol Oates i samtal med Elin Kullhed. Varmt välkomna. Får mamma en puss? Två pussar. Hon drar dem i deras små vantklädda händer mot skolans bakre entré. Vid dörren, strax innanför dörren, lutar hon sig fram för att pussa Katja. Lutar sig fram för att pussa Connor. Ja, deras pannor känns en aning varma. Ja, det är för sent för att göra något åt det. Bäst att inte tänka på det. Eller snarare skjuta upp tanken på det i samma stund som den vackra lilla flickan motvilligt släpper mamma. Som den vackra lilla pojken rycker sig loss från mamma med ett tappert förvridet leende. Var och en med allvaret hos små barn som blinkar bort tårar som inte får fällas i stökigare klasskamraters närvaro. Hon tänker... Men tänk om jag aldrig ser dem igen. Tänk om de aldrig ser mamma igen. Långfredag 1977. Torr värme, september. Han ringer, säger att han måste få träffa henne. Snabbt svarar hon, nej. Hon är orolig. Hennes hjärta är en tappert klämtande klocka. Allt det där är över. Hon är en annan människa nu. Hon har faktiskt glömt honom. Närmar sig en ringande telefon, lyfter på luren utan att det hugger till av fasa. För vad är fasa om inte rädslan för hopp? För vad är förlusten av fasa om inte förlusten av hopp? Han låter henne prata. En rasslande drake menad att stiga i luften men fångad i de lägsta grenarna. Tyst frågar han när han får träffa henne igen. Hon säger att det inte går, inte längre. Men när får han träffa henne igen, frågar han. Joyce Carol Oates, welcome. Um, so I hear you've been traveling just recently, to Norway and Denmark. Yes, we were in Oslo for two nights, and we were outside Copenhagen at the wonderful Louisiana Festival Yeah, for three nights, yes. What kind of relationship do you have with the Nordic countries? Well, I'm not sure. It's very complicated. Uh, when taking beautiful f- photographs and visiting the Munch Museum and seeing... Uh, Munch is one of my very favorite artists, so seeing the... The, the, seeing the paintings in real life have been very uh, profound and, and sort of haunting. And as I tweeted, I said, Scandinavia is the place where tall Americans grow, go to become short. <laughs> <laughs> so we think we're tall, then we get here and uh, it's a surprise. <laughs> and then you're short. Yes. And now you're here in Sweden to launch your latest novel, Babysitter, Barnvakten. 
beautifully translated into Swedish by Fredrika Spindler. And Babysitter is a novel about motherhood, crime, and desire. It is set in fictitious Detroit, Michigan in 1977. And at the center of the novel, we have 39-year-old Hannah Jarrett. She's a white, affluent, married mother of two. She gets involved with an abusive lover at a time when a series of child kidnappings and murders shake the city. And these are committed by a serial killer or serial killers who in the newspapers go under the name of babysitter. And there is a racist imagination tied to this name because in the white people's mind, it's evident that babysitter must be a man of color and that he kills white children. And I think for a start, it would be just wonderful to, for us to hear some of the text in your voice. Okay. If you would please read a short excerpt to us. Um, so this is the little paragraph, Breathe, the chapter Breathe. Oh, thank, thank you. you, thank you. Well, to give a little context, Babysitter is actually a, a historic person originally called the Oakland County Baby Killer. He was um, never apprehended, and I was drawn to, the, drawn to the mystery, to the case, as I'm drawn to many mysteries that are unsolved in, Amer in American history. So I lived in Detroit around this time, and I was friends with women who had children who were of the age of the victims of babysitter. He was someone, as I said, never, never apprehended and so never really identified, but police investigators thought they had some ideas of who he probably was, and if so, this person committed suicide at some point, you know, after the time of, of this novel. Mm -hmm. So what I, do, what I was, wanted to do in the novel is to write from the point of view of a person who is, in a way, representative maybe of a, of a woman of her time, not necessarily a woman like us, but a woman of her time. But I also wanted to, to give life to the victims, because when we hear about atrocities and terrible crimes, focus is usually on the uh, perpetrator who's brought to justice. But I wanted to give a voice to these children. There were a succession of children who were abducted and I guess tortured and kept maybe for seven days or even more in some place in, the, in the, some affluent suburb of Detroit, it was thought. As I said, it was never really solved. And then when the babysitter killed the children, then he brought them out to a public place and had this kind of ritual where their, their bodies were naked. He had cleaned them, he had washed them, even cleaning their fingernails, and would lay them out like in a park in some public place. And then their clothing would have been carefully laundered and folded beside them. So there was a strange dissonance between the violence of what he had actually perpetrated upon them and then the peacefulness and the strange aesthetic, almost aesthetic beauty of his trying to set some kind of a scene. And it was extremely terrifying as well as bizarre. So this is just a little uh, 
a, a chapter, some of the chapters are very short in Babysitter. This is the posthumous voice of one of the victims, a young child of about 10. Breathe. When I died, it was not peaceful. When I died, it was in rage. When I died, it was a terrible struggle. When I died, I was trying to breathe. When I died, I was trying to breathe, trying to tear, tear the wire from around my throat, trying to dig my fingers beneath the wire, tightening around my throat to tear the wire from my throat to breathe, to breathe, to breathe. Thank you. So, why did um, Babysitter emerge in your writing at this point? Well, as I said, I lived through that time in Detroit, and I was haunted by the uh, phenomenon of living in um, a place where atrocities were going on, and one didn't know when it would strike next and, and who it would strike. Uh, opening the newspaper was a time before the internet, so I, people actually read newspapers, you know, mm. and um, got their news maybe from like the 11 o'clock news. It wasn't this round-the-clock, 24-hour news that we have today. I guess it's really a different era, where you would almost wait for the next morning to get news, and then you'd open the paper, and there'd be a kind of terrifying headline about an abduction of another child or a child's body found. So I lived through that era, in Detroit, and I started writing a novel at that time, which was actually quite a long time ago, and then I, I couldn't find the voice for it. I had wanted to have a, a kind of community, communal, collective voice of people who were frightened or even terrified, but I didn't get that voice, and so I set the novel aside, and other projects intervened. So then, just recently, I mean, it was really just... Uh, maybe four or five years ago, I wrote a short story called Babysitter. So it was evoking that time, because I, I remembered being so haunted, and I really love to commemorate worlds. I think that's one of the reasons that we write, to sort of look back into the past and bring a world to life that has been almost forgotten. So it's like, a tra like time travel. Uh, many of us who are writers uh, like to go back to our childhoods and we're sort of evoking people who are no longer living and things that, landscapes and cityscapes that, we, that we've lost, that we bring to life again. So I have to admit, it's just a really very powerful kind of uh, mystical sensation that I have going into a place like this. So I was evoking Detroit in, in that era and I remember when I was living there, I was teaching in the center city, and I would drive a lot along the, uh, the expressways and sort of the thrill of driving. I was newly married, and I was a new teacher, so life was sort of come, rushing at me. A lot of things were going on. So for me, the novel was evoking that, but also it was written during the pandemic. So in, in March... Uh, 2020, I was working on a novel, and, I, and around that time and after that time, I think unlike, maybe unlike Sweden, uh, parts of America really locked down, so we were sort of locked down. Like you weren't supposed to leave your house, and businesses were closed, and schools were closed. So those of us who live alone were really alone, 
And it was a kind of stark existential experience to be in a place where you were really alone and also in uh, the anxiety of the time, you literally didn't know whether you would be alive in a couple of days because nobody knew how this disease, COVID, was really being transmitted. There were lots of theories and there was no, no vaccine then. So two of my friends died quite early and I think that they were the kind of people who would sort of be uh, indifferent to, uh, they would think, oh, you're exaggerating, you know, oh, you're being paranoid, and they think, I'm not gonna be afraid, and so they would go to New York on the train, and whatever they did, they were probably just being their own selves. And in other words, they weren't hypochondriacs, they were sort of going out into the world, and then they died, and, and that was just uh, very stunning. So the novel is written in this historical present where it's like a movie that's unfolding. The way our lives are like movies unfolding, we really don't know what tonight will bring, what dreams will wash over our, our captive brains, you know, sort of just this phantasmagoria of things that might happen to us. We don't know what tomorrow will be like. And I think particularly living in America, there's this uh, fraught sense of some disaster that's waiting in the wings that might happen uh, at almost any time in America, which is super saturated with guns and a kind of political toxins at this, at this point. So I was evoking this world that was lost, and I wanted to imagine it as a series of cinematic scenes. So it starts off with a the first scene is a woman on an, um, she's going to an, an elevator in a hotel and it's one of these transparent glass elevators that lifts like a ca capsule up into a high rise and it is a hotel in Detroit that I've been in. A lot of the places in the novel have places I've been in. And so we sort of see her rising into this other dimension and she's carrying a handbag, not like my handbag, but a really expensive handbag, like a Prada handbag. She's carrying a handbag, but she's not carrying it the way she usually does. She's carrying it like this, as if it has some, some weight in it. So that suggests to the, the reader or the viewer, if it's a movie, that maybe she, she might have a gun, she might have something in it that she doesn't usually have. And what, and what is she going to do? She isn't sure what she's going to do, because she's a character in a movie scene. She's living out her life scene by scene, and she's sort of going to discover what the script holds for her, which is how we all felt at the time of COVID. Hmm. Yeah, so... Um, okay, so it's both the, the place and it's Hannah, you know? So maybe, um, I mean, place plays an important role in, in all your writing. Um, and, and in Babysitter, we have the city of Detroit in 1977. So what kind of city is Detroit in your text? Well, there's a Detroit of the present time, which is very ravaged. It looks like a city that's been under siege, like wartime. There's rubble, and there are trees growing up in ruins of houses because it's sort of partly an abandoned city. 
There are people living there also. It's a, it's a fantastic city. If you're interested, you can you type in, go to Google, you type in ruins of Detroit. And it's the most astonishing visual uh, series of portraits of a, a great American city that's in ruins. And all these great buildings, architectural uh, gems, landmarks in many cases there are now in ruins. You don't have to go to ancient Athens, it's just Detroit is there. But what is so strange to me is that I lived through the time of Detroit when it was a boom city, booming, uh, sort of the very best example of capitalism, American capitalism, you know, the smokestacks are belching smoke and even a little flame, General Motors and Chrysler and Ford, you know, they're just employing hundreds of thousands of workers and people are making a lot of money and now, in 2023, it's a city of ruins. It's just almost like an allegory of, what, of, of the, the vanity of human wishes. But at the time of the novel, it was sort of a boom time. It was following the, the uh, civic disturbance of July 1967. Probably doesn't mean too much to you here. It's, it's very, uh, I think, wrongly called the Detroit riot. I think it wasn't exact, it wasn't really a riot, it was like a civil disturbance. But the D Detroit riot, which precipitated many affluent um, uh, uh, Detroiters to move to the suburbs. So at the time of my novel, most of the city is a black city. There are some northwestern suburbs that are still white or integrated. When I lived in Detroit, I lived in a really nice integrated neighborhood. The persons of color and white people were all kind of living pretty peacefully together. But as time went on, the white people kept, kept leaving, so I think that might be like that now. So in the very affluent suburb of Bloomfield Hills and then a fictitious suburb like Birmingham, Michigan, I don't know if anybody knows these places, uh, and this Gross Point, Michigan, uh, those, are the, that, those are the main settings for the novel and then the city of Detroit. So we have like this, this white enclave, it's sort of like a, a strata almost of the imagination where the white people have fled to this, but then the violence is coming after them and their children are being taken from them. So it's kind of like a, a parable of good and evil, I think, trying to get away from evil but it follows you. And then Hannah, who she lives in a suburb, she elects of her own to go into the city, so she spends a lot of time in the novel. She's driving on this expressway down to the very base of Detroit, which is where the Detroit River is. And I just thought it was thrilling. It's sort of like a visionary, uh, it's like a trip of some kind. When I wrote the novel, I would just have this uh, this kind of thrilling sensation. I know you've written uh, maybe more than one novel, and you probably have that feeling too sometimes that you're so immersed. It's like you're actually living this adventure. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> um, and you lived in Detroit during the 60s. You've yes, said. I lived in this Detroit This was before at the, the 70s, yeah. Can I you tell us something about that experience? 
You had your first teaching job there? Yeah, but I was quite a, a sort of a young person then. And uh, I, I remember that I was so excited about teaching and I was excited about living in a big American city. I should say to sort of introduce myself that I'm actually from the country. I'm from upstate western New York, which is very far west and north of Buffalo in what's called a snow belt. So people thought that there was nothing north of Buffalo, but I said, well, we, we live there, so <laughs> I had to be something there. And I grew up on a small farm that was really small. It was not prosperous. I mean, we were not really poor people, but we were not at all prosperous people. So I lived my early life on a farm, and then I went to a rural school that was a one-room schoolhouse. Then I went to a very, uh, very ordinary, maybe not very well-staffed, um, school in a, in a small city. And then by school bus, I was sent to a, a better high school. But when I was... When I was 21 and 22, that's when my husband and I moved to Detroit. So for me, that was my introduction to living in a big city. Mm. a big urban area, yeah. and it has a different consciousness. And just being on the, on the expressway and driving, and just sort of seeing so much and seeing people from different ethnic backgrounds. So it's almost like a, a parable of a rural America, which tends to be sort of homogenous and not diverse, you know, like rural America. And I came from there, and I love, I love living on a farm, and I love nature, it's sort of deeply imprinted in my mind. But then going to this big urban area where I was teaching for the first time in my life, and meeting people of a kind I never met before, and just being in this kind of thrumming city, I sort of felt it was like a vibrations of the mm. city. and. Uh, there's a Detroit music. I mean, every, everything about Detroit was, was exciting. I didn't quite realize that it was such a segregated city. Hmm. I think when you're a, a white, white majority people in America say that they're colorblind and they're sort of unaware, of, they would say that they're liberal maybe, but in a way they're like not really aware, you know, of how other people are living because you don't, you don't have the collisions with the police and the conflicts that, that people who are not white commonly have. So I mean, we intellectually, we can be told that, but we don't have the visceral sense that a black American feels, especially a young man, just going out on an ordinary day to his job, he can feel that he might not come back because a, a white police officer or several of them might, you know, might, might harass him or something. But I, but I didn't know that, and nobody, I think almost nobody knew that because we, we didn't have that knowledge. It was only about 20 years later, when, with reading books like John Hershey, the Algiers Motel uh, incident, and other books about the Detroit riot, quote-unquote, so-called riot, reading about what Detroit was afterward by historians, then you sort of you learn about your own history. So when I was living in Detroit, I wanted, to I wanted to replicate in the novel the experience of living there without knowing the future, or without knowing what life would be after this terror was over. Mm. 
but one sensibility that I brought to the novel very consciously is that we have a sensibility after the Me Too movement and in the 21st century that sexual predators and serial killers and people like that are not lone marginal people exclusively. I mean, they're, they are in some ways very marginal and they're sort of secret. But we know now that they're very likely to have protection. They have enablers, sometimes their own families or their social group or somebody who's like their lawyers. They're, they're kind of protected. I think Harvey Weinstein is a quintessential example of a person who mm. is a sexual predator of extraordinary type, and yet he got away with terrible crimes, really violent crimes, as well as every other kind of coercive crime against women. Uh, he got away with that because of this web of people helping him. They could be, in some cases, very good people, nice people, secretaries and others, they sort of knew, or they definitely knew, that he was a predator, and yet nobody did anything for a long time, including uh, you know, very well-to-do professional people who worked with him. So we mm. didn't have that sensibility decades ago that there were so many enablers. But I think today, when we look at one, a sexual predator or a serial killer, we're, always, we're also looking at, well, who, who, who allowed him and who, who was looking the other way? And definitely babysitter, he definitely was protected by some people. It's thought that he was the son of an executive at General Motors. And the person who was probably babysitter, because I did research for the novel too, he had been arrested a number of times for uh, uh, molesting underage children, but each time the charges were dropped because he had a lawyer and his parents had money. Mm. And so th they would have him arrested, but they would have to let him go. And he, never, uh, he was never formally charged. Finally, at some point, the, the abductions and killings stopped. So it's thought maybe he was in prison, maybe he just disappeared, or maybe he committed suicide, it's not really known. Mm. So because it was never solved, I felt that I could imagine a probability. Yeah. And then also there's the exploitation of black people, kind of always like a subterranean theme in, in any story about Detroit. Mm. Yeah, the people of power are always protected. Uh, and I find it very interesting how you display power structures in your novel. I mean, gender-wise and racial-wise, because Hannah becomes both a victim and a perpetrator in this text. Uh, so could you please tell us a little bit about Hannah? I mean, blonde, bourgeois Hannah, rich bitch, she's called. Who is she, would you say? Well, Hannah is a, is a woman who does not have a career. You know, maybe she could have been a poet or a writer, but that's just not the way that her life turned out. Mm. And she's, um, she's really of another era, yet I think there are still women like this, perhaps. She's defined by other people. First, she was defined by a very strong, powerful, domineering father. So she's sort of the daughter of this father. And this reminds us of Sylvia Plath, you know, defining oneself, yeah. uh, the love-hate relationship. But in Hannah's case, she was more oppressed by 
her father. He was a man manipulative person in his own way, a predator, in a way of, of his, his, his own daughter, sort of psychologically. And he taught her that impressions are all that matter. You have to be very beautiful. You have to have designer clothing. You have to be just perfect when you go out in the world because you're manipulating other people. They look at you, and you have to have like a mask that you wear. You can't show you're vulnerable, you know, your raw, your raw being. You can't show anyone that. So she sort of has uh, assimilated this idea, which I think is sort of American. You know, you have uh, an image that you're promulgating, you're sort of selling, kind of selling yourself. And then your real self is, is, uh, is squashed and mashed and, and distorted and kind of uh, disfigured and, and hidden. That she, uh, she's married to a man who is very successful. He lives in, he came from Gross Point, and he's a very, uh, he's a son of a very well-to-do family, and he's sort of carrying on his, his, the patriarchal role that he's carrying on very well. And so she's, she's been selected to marry him because she has all these attributes, and she uh, is always uneasy that he doesn't really love her any longer because some years have gone by, and she's not as beautiful as she had been. Then she has two children, and they adore their mother, but they only think of her as a mother, and they're somewhat spoiled. And she, she spoils them because she's, she dreads they're not loving her. She doesn't, she doesn't want to ever discipline her, her kind of obnoxious little boy. He's a feisty little boy. Uh, she doesn't want to discipline him, though he should be disciplined, because she doesn't want him not to love her. So there's a kind of uh, strange negotiation here where she's not really a strong mother. In a way, she's a weak mother. And then she becomes uh, the object of a man's uh, intense interest. She thinks that a man has falling, fallen in love with her. He seems to have been really strongly attracted to her, and she agrees to meet him. So that precipitates the novel. That's the beginning of the novel that he has, she has met this, this man. Now later on we learn, though I shouldn't say this, we learn that he has some reason for approaching her, but she doesn't know that. Yeah. But I'm, I'm, I'm interested in, I mean, why is this her story? Because the novel is closest to Hannah. Why is this Hannah's story? It's, 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 it's a little bit like Hannah's body becomes the novel's battleground for all the violence that is in this novel? Well, there would have to be a character who would, who would move easily in and out of the wor that world that Babysitter also moves in and out of. Uh, ba by Babysitter, I mean the son of somebody who's uh, quite a multimillionaire who, uh, who live in Bloomfield Hills. So their son is this serial killer. But he's, he's moving in a, a kind of rarefied world and she meets him a few times. Their paths in, sort of intersect. She's like a vacuous dreamer. I would think that's sort of like the way we are sometimes when we're not quite awake and, and we're having these strange dreams and we're sort of in the dream, but you're not exactly guiding the dream. She's, she's often in a situation where she doesn't know if she's going to turn the car to the left or to the right. If she goes this way, she'll go just home where her, her children will be waiting. She has a nanny, a wonderful 
servant who takes care of a Filipino woman who just does everything and takes care of the house. She'll go back there and be the wife and mother. Or if she turns right, she might go downtown to this luxury hotel. It's like a five-star hotel, a high-rise hotel in Detroit, where she'll meet this, this lover. She never even really knows his name exactly. She does find his passport at one point, and she sees a name there. And she sees his picture, though it doesn't exactly look like him. She, she's sort of, she's so completely mesmerized by him because he's reached into her life. It's like he's reached behind this carapace of her disguise and sort of touched, touched her beating heart, you know, like really touched her inside all these roles that she's playing. And though he treats her in a way very very primitively and roughly and disrespectfully, he's the only one in the novel who really evokes in her any feeling. So it's not just that she feels happy in his presence, she also feels very anxious. She sometimes thinks that he may, he may, he may strangle her, or maybe she's already dead. The novel, once in a while, there are these italicized passages where she might be lying on a gurney in, uh, in a morgue. She might just be thinking about all this, that she's gone too far. Nonetheless, she gets in her car and drives down to Detroit. So I think that the analog with the writer, and since, since you're a novelist also, maybe you will agree with this, that the safe thing is not to write the novel. Like the safe thing is just to go about your life but not plunge into that other world of the imagination. But it's like Hannah decides, I'm going to go this way. I'm going to go down into, into Detroit, sort of plunging like Alice in Wonderland through the looking glass into this other world. Even though it might kill me, I might regret it, I'm exhausted, I won't be able to sleep all summer, I have this insomnia. Nonetheless, it's an adventure. And if I don't do that and take the safe way, then I'll never know what I'm capable of. Mm. But how comes she's so destructive? She's so masochistic, really. Well, she's masochistic because she probably thinks that she deserves to be punished. Why? Most people, who, most people feel in some ways that they deserve to be punished. <laughs> I think that we... Uh, People who are writers, and I think athletes who are really in training, uh, have to undergo a good deal of, of uh, more than just discomfort, sometimes actual pain. Yeah, yeah. You know, I also wrote a book on boxing once. And yeah. That of all of all the sports, um, well, maybe maybe all sports do that. The physical being is really undergoes a good deal of pain. The pain in the uh, in the, the, uh, with the agenda of rising through the pain to some sort of uh, accomplishment or achievement of something, not to just take the easy way, but to actually risk something. And I, I think there are people who are in fields that are very, very fraught. Like, I would find it very difficult, I mean, really probably impossible, to be an actor, to be a performer on a stage, to be especially a musician 
or a professional athlete. You, you embody in your, in your actual being the vision of your, uh, your, all your hopes are in your body. Those of us who are writers, the embodiment of our work, our vision is actually not in our bodies. The embodiment is in, is in a book, you know. And if, even if you're making a movie, the movie is, though you're an actor, you're sort of not, you're not being seen. Stage actors are the ones who have no, no filter or no barrier. They're right you know, in front of an audience. So you, you, uh, you're so precarious. And most of us feel, who are writers and poets, that we, we want an icy cold medium. I want to be able to revise and revise and revise. I just spend so much time, I'm, I'm sure you do also, revising. Like the first thing that comes out is just sort of the putty that we're revising. And there may be a little bit of a masochistic strain in working so hard, you know, working until you're really exhausted. I always felt as a young writer that if I didn't, if I didn't feel that I had a, actually a headache and was completely exhausted, I didn't feel that I deserved to go to bed. You know, <laughs> like maybe like it's one in the morning, I'm still working on this chapter. I'm not going to go to bed until I finish this scene because I'm just not going to do it. You know, it's sort of like stubborn. Writers are stubborn also. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. But, uh, <laughs> but it seemed to me that Hannah is like a vessel for others' suffering. And these events take place on Good Friday, 1977, um, a very symbolic date. And, I mean, she's like Jesus in that sense, who suffers for all who have suffered. And she's even compared to Jesus in the text. What are your thoughts on that? Does this ring true? Well, in, in writing a novel, I think we strike a lot of uh, different chords. It's like writing poetry where there are images and things. They're meant to reverberate. I don't think they have a, liter a literal analog, you know. Like, I don't write a novel that has, you know, 15 points to make. That's sort of evoking. She comes from a Catholic background, so her mind goes to these, these images. And the idea that there would be a crucifixion to some people, is very barbaric in like the idea that there's a God that suffers in a, in a human form in history, actually in history, that a God comes out of eternity, out of timelessness into, into time. That's a kind of idea. I'm not sure that it's, it's uh, I don't think it's a universal idea. I mean, it's sort of like the Christian. It's very much a Christian idea. So she was brought up that way and also to be... Uh, to have a predilection for sin, like some people are brought up that, uh, that they're not innocent, that they're, they are born in original sin. Uh, our Calvinist, particularly Protestant ancestors believe that the weight of sin on ordinary people was very heavy and that we would need a redeemer or we would need a savior to die for our sins. That's just a way of looking at life. There are, there are other ways of looking at life. And obviously, not everybody in the novel would share this kind of... A, it is deeply masochistic, I think, to identify with that kind of a, a, a suffering God, a God figure that is also a, a human being who's, who's literally suffering. I read another uh, one of your novels called Zombie, 
um, I think it's from 1995, right? Um, and it's also about a serial killer in Detroit. And this is com a completely different text. Um, I mean, it's really from the mind of the killer, the serial killer, and his language. Uh, and this, um, this text, Zombie, it really lacks, I mean, any kind of beauty or sentiment or uh, romantic um, images of, of death. Um, uh, but I'm really interested in, in, in the language, uh, because in the darkest corners of this novel, Babysitter, and it's really dark, um, you display a beautiful and very well-versed and almost romantic language. Um, so my question is, why is death and violence in your story portrayed almost in terms of beauty? Well, I think the I think the the dark side of romanticism is that people are are enthralled by mystery, even if it's going to be um, destructive. You know that we're drawn to we're drawn to a sort of Wagnerian opera or Shakespearean tragedy. Some people are only drawn to very genteel sort of sweet things, things that are, are nice, you know, N-I-C-E, nice. Other people are drawn to more of a testing of limits, I think. And uh, the romanticism of Zombie is kind of ironic. He has this, he has this dream, uh, this vision that he will create a zombie, that he will literally perform an a lobotomy on a person with ice pick so that this person would become his, his zombie, like his servant, and the zombie would love him because he, the character in my novel, Quentin P., he knows that a normal person is not going to love him. And if you had a love relationship with a person, it would be as equals. So the person would be looking at you and, and judging you, and it would be kind of reciprocal relationship. But the, the dream of the zombie is like you have a servant, a perpetual subordinate who, who doesn't have the power that you have. Mm -hmm. So I, obviously I and, and other people think of this as deeply, deeply psychopathological. It's not, not a normal, it's not really good. But when I was researching zombie, I was sort of looking into the history of, of neuroscience and of lobotomies and how doctors and psychiatrists and the medical establishment would control people by, by their strict definitions of what sanity is. And I probably don't have to tell people that in the 19th century, it was very easy for a woman to be declared insane. I think her husband, at least in America, her husband just had to get a doctor to say that she wasn't, she wasn't sane and she could be put into a mental institution. And one way in which women were thought to be insane was that they didn't want to be married. <laughs> or they were married and then they didn't want to stay married. Or they were married and they didn't want to have babies, or they had babies and didn't want to have more babies. And so the idea that a woman would have autonomy over her own body 
and say, no, I don't want to do the things that men, that my husband and my father want me to do, those women were very vulnerable to being declared insane. I mean, I've actually done a lot of research into this, and it's, it's, not, uh, it's not really that unusual. I mean, I know people know about this, of course. And well into the 20th century, even to the 1950s, that women were judged very harshly if they were not feminine, you know, that they were not doing the things that women were supposed to do. And a lot of this was reinforced by a patriarchal religion that sort of urges young girls to marry and to propagate and be, be good wives and good mothers. I think we're coming, uh, we've come to a different age. Uh, some parts of the world actually are still uh, putting women down and oppressing women. Uh, other parts of the world are much more uh, enlightened, and I think that um, we're very lucky to live in those parts of the world. There are pockets of America that are sort of dropping back and becoming re regressive, which is sort of a tragedy, but it's not, it's not happening here. Mm. Um, so this story is set in a time then when, when patriarchy rules, and Hannah is rich, but she's nowhere to, near being rich outside her marriage with uh, Wes. Um, and Hannah is really like a child herself, and she's really lonely. Um, so what about the women's liberation movement? I mean, the, the 70s, what about that time? She's, I mean, she's utterly lonely. Well, there, there have always been, uh, there have always been women who've been activists and sort of, you know, organizing for change. But the great majority of women, at least in America, uh, probably not, particularly in the, in the mid-20th century, I don't think so. Well, Hannah, Hannah, like many women who has, who, who lives in a kind of cocoon of comfort, mm. she doesn't really have her own money, and she doesn't know how much money her husband has. There's an exchange between two, Hannah and another woman in, no, in a novel, um, which is actually based on women that, I've, that I knew, uh, this woman says, we don't really know what our husbands are doing. So even now, I mean, just in the 21st century, I do have a woman friend whose husband was extremely well-to-do, and he was secreting his money away in, in the Cayman Islands. That's a tax shelter. You can put your money in some place that's not in the jurisdiction of the United States and sort of putting his money away, and then he declared that he wanted a divorce, and she uh, suddenly realized that she had almost no money. And he was a multimillionaire, but according to the tax records or whatever, like he didn't have any money. He, was, he, he elected to have a salary that was very low for a year or so, and so she could have like half of that. It was all very stunning. I had... Uh, not necessarily been thinking of this when I wrote the novel, but really thinking about my friends in Detroit, all sort of on a short leash where it was like they, they're, they're treated very well and very beautiful women and, and I guess happy in some ways. But if something went wrong or the husband wanted to marry a younger version of the same woman, then sort of all would come to a, a sudden halt. Yeah. Uh, thank you. Um, I mean, your novel is an endlessly exciting read. I mean, 
in a photo of me this summer, uh, I'm reading your book, and on the surface, it all seems sweet and calm. But if you zoom into the picture, you can see that my jaw has dropped, and I'm uh -huh. actually reading in a state of shock. So I'm really just interested in how, how did you find the tone and language of this uh, novel, uh, and also how you work with the scenes, because the scenes are just perfect. They always stretch to their very limit. Oh, well, thank you. Well, I did come from Detroit, you know, and I do remember these places. So try to invent uh, an imagination, a kind of consciousness, who would be babysitter, who would be a terrible predator of young children. He kind of romanticizes these children he, he tortures them and murders them. It's, he's a sexual predator. But he would say the children have captivated him. He would say that he was under the spell of these children. And that's the strange paradox of serial killers and people who do these, these violent crimes. They are fantasists. And their fantasy life is very strong. And so they can imagine looking at someone they see in the world, like a very beautiful uh, young girl, for instance, sort of feel that that girl is exerting power over them. You know, like they are in a way innocent, and it's like these children are drawing him to them. And now to, the, to us that sounds very improbable, but to them as fantasists, that's really... That's really how they feel. So I wanted to give voice to that, uh, that sensibility, which I think is, it inhabits the world, um, even though we don't like it. And then I wanted to have a sense of justice, so I spent time uh, evoking a character named Mikey, who's a street boy. He's an orphan, he's been debased, and he's been uh, the object of sexual predators too, but he hasn't died. He, uh, He's now about 20 years old. And so he becomes, I think, really an unlikely uh, vigilante force for some, some kind of justice. And I really got to identify very much with him in the terms of his leading the, the plot. Mm -hmm. And um, while other people are, like Hannah, are kind of hypnotized and not, not able to do anything, he, he kind of moves and actually yeah. does something. Yeah. And his, I mean, he, he is written in a, in a different language, in a different tone. Different tone, yeah, yeah very so different, yeah. How did you elaborate with these different tones? And also the, the italics, I mean, that is another voice, really. Yeah, well, I'm very drawn to the imaginations and voices of people, that, not myself. So in uh, Zombie, is a character who hates women. And, or he's indifferent to women. So all the little charms and, you know, seductions of women mean nothing to him. He's literally uninterested yeah. at all. The way a carnivore would be uninterested in a cabbage, you know, just bore, boring, you know, just not interested. So uh, evoking a character like that so antithetical to me is really an exciting leap in imagination, and I guess you could call it empathy, having empathy for somebody like that. Yeah. And then there's a novel of mine called the, A Book of American Martyrs, and my favorite character in that novel, one of my favorite characters of all, is a girl of, uh, she's 14 or 15 or 16, 
She becomes a girl, a professional boxer. She doesn't read at all. She's probably not even very functionally literate. But she lives in her body and she's training. And her thoughts are, she sort of sees things scudding along like clouds coming and she sort of gives herself up to the world a sensation. And she does things in impulsive ways, uh, very different from people who are intellectuals. We tend to, th we, we might overthink, like we think of the, you know, rational uh, possibilities for something like maybe five things and kind of weighing them. There are a whole class of people who just act impulsively and they do things without necessarily even knowing what they're doing. And then later on they, they might think there's some reason for it, but at the time they're sort of acting. So she is uh, another character that I really identified with and I would say she's a little bit like like Mikey, he just feels this innate sense of disgust and, and, and revulsion for what Babysitter has done. He's seen that Babysitter has really, really hurt a child and he really wants to stop that. And nobody else is going to. The, the police are not going to even try to, they, they can't, they're not really making that much effort to find him. It's left up to him. So. That was a real leap for me as a writer to kind of identify with him. Yeah, yeah. But um, what about the italics? Um, I'm very interested in this because I used to tell my students, like in a first lesson, never to use italics because I didn't want them to seek effects from the typograph before they had secured the meaning of the text and the word themselves, you know? Uh, but could you tell us about your relationship to italics? Because this is a style that you could have patented, you know? Well, every, I think every voice has its own, its own rhythms and uh, musicality. I certainly don't use italics all the time. To me, italics signal the deeper self-thinking. Hmm. You know, you have a conversation with somebody and you're, you're speaking, you know, in a kind of coherent way and you're pleasant and it's very civil. But then the caption of like the, the, the italics is how long is this going to be? <laughs> what am I doing here? You know, like what? Uh, the, the, we all have that, those little voices that are not articulated, you know, and sometimes it's not even a conscious thought. But I think most of us have that and it's almost like you're on camera and you're relating here, but then this scroll at the bottom, you know, like, what am I, where am I and what am I doing here and, and so forth. Yeah, and I think about musicality, of course. It's like you're really composing your novel, yeah? Yeah, yeah. And then, of course, the children who are dead, their, yeah. their voices come from another world of the imagination. We have to imagine them. I mean, literally, they don't ha literally the dead don't have any voice, but in our dreams sometimes, a person who is not living in life is alive again, and they may have some sort of uh, vision to, to give you or a message. Sometimes the dead appear to us. I think there are two kinds of dead people we dream about. One, one are dead persons in whom we have known who are there to tell us something or to give us some consolation or take our hand. I have a friend who said that her dead, her father, dead for 30 years, spoke to her the other night in a dream. It was a nightmare, and he said, he said some words, and she recognized his voice, 
And she was so moved by that. She, she was just profoundly moved by that, that dream. So there is an example of a vision from some other dimension of consciousness. Now, I think not literally from the dead, but from some memory in our brains where the dead are not necessarily dead. Uh, Freud said that our unconscious doesn't understand time. So in the unconscious, you are, we are all children. We, we can be children as naturally as we are our ages. And I know that when I have a dream, I'm, I'm an indeterminate age. It's not necessarily the present time. It's like some other time. I could be much younger. I, I don't even, even know who I am. It's sort of like um, a Mobius strip of being that's detached from actual time. And I'm sure that's universal and that other people have that too. Mm. So the dream is a place where the dead might appear. That if you wanted to give voice to, to the dead in your writing, you would probably give them a, a visionary language that was beautiful and elevated. So it's kind of an elevated speech. I don't think you would give them a debased, it wouldn't be a low, you know, debased speech. It would be something that would be elevated. I love it how, how Hannah is both dead and alive in this text. And I think it's really interesting how she dies. And in the next moment, she awakes to her sick child calling for her. Yes, yeah. yes. It's like she can't escape motherhood. She's, she's not even permitted to die, in a way. <laughs> well, she finally does discover that her, her deepest self is, if not being a mother, to save her child from this predator. He actually has the little, a little boy's hand in his, and he's sort of taken away. And she's, she crawls out, and she pulls her son back. So she does that very unconsciously. And when I wrote, I wrote that scene, it was very exciting to me. I know exactly where it's set. I know exactly the, the, the sky, uh, kind of a thunderous sky, where she makes her decision between her lover and her son, and there's no hesitation. She just reaches for her son, and she pulls him back. And from that point onward, she, she has lost her lover. The whole thing is over. And so I think when it comes right down to it, we do have a solid identity and we, we save someone, even though it may be injurious to us. So if she becomes, in a way, she's a heroine, like nobody would know she's a heroine. It's like something that she does that's very private. Even her own son doesn't necessarily know how he saved her. I mean, you're an academic. You've been a professor for a long time. And I'm just curious, I mean, how you balance all that you know uh, with the unknown you know, that the writing um, brings to you? Well, I don't know how I can possibly answer that. Uh, <laughs> that's so broad. Yeah. Uh, I think each novel, each project, each, if it's just a poem, it could be something very short. You have to give yourself up to it completely and yeah. just be completely immersed. It could be a poem of 14 lines and you just sort of inhabit it and, and work on it and live with it for days and days or weeks or however. Emily Dickinson worked on some of her short poems literally for years. There are poems that she would have, uh, you know, manuscript state, and she would revise them and add things. So it's, it has to be sort of like a magical process. 
And we know, we know that by doing it rather than, than talking about it. And then as a professor, I, I, I guide young students. Uh, sometimes they're not that young. My students can be any ages, really. I have graduate students. Some of them are older, they're middle-aged, actually. And they're working on novels or often memoirs. And I try to guide them to the very best beginning. You know, what's the best beginning for you? Is this the, this first scene? Let's choose the most exciting scene, you know. You don't want to begin with just an ordinary, banal, conventional beginning. Let's have a special opening that nobody's had before. So we work to find that best beginning, and then once we have that exciting opening, then the rest of it, you know, can follow from that. But I often, I often, tell my students, or I encourage them, or maybe I make them, I'm not, <laughs> I say, well, you, this is acceptable. I said, this is okay, this is acceptable. But why don't you go, go away, for, and next week come back with a, 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 different, a different way in. Because say, telling a story is like you open a door and walk through a hallway, and you're looking at rooms, and it's like a little adventure. How about instead of opening the front door, you go around to the back and crawl through a basement window and come and come, sort of come that way or, or come through a window over here and let's see something original and new. Yeah. <laughs> so um, just one last question. I mean, your writing uh, holds up a prism for us to look at the United States. Um, do you think that you could write a novel um, set in Sweden, for example? Well, I, I, that's a good question. We have our issues of appropriation of uh, people moving into territories that they haven't really uh, that they haven't really earned. You know, I don't know how to answer that. People who write uh, novels and poems set in foreign countries are people who've been living there. Like, there's such powerful work of Paul Bowles said in Tangier in, in Morocco after he'd been living there a while and had been kind of assimil assimilating the culture. But he almost always writes from the point of view of a white man, an American man in Morocco, you know, and having experiences with indigenous people and so forth. So. If you're a Swedish person and you came to the United States, it would be natural for you to write a novel about a Swedish person in the United States getting all these impressions. Mm. <coughs> and that wouldn't be very natural and unforced. It would be very difficult for you, if you're a Swedish writer, <coughs> to suddenly start writing about somebody in Texas. <laughs> and you don't know anything about Texas, you know. Yeah. So I think when we're writing... <coughs> writing Excuse me. When you're writing science fiction, science fiction writers spend a lot of time building worlds. They don't just leap into, you know, I'm, I'm on Mars or I'm on Pluto or whatever. They kind of set the scene. And I know J.K. Rowling's novels are, are not science fiction, but they're fantasy. And they set this very complex kind of uh, school scene and there's a lot going on that's sort of in the background and all fantasy writers spend time 
Uh, Dracula has a lot of scenery and atmosphere, traveling from England to go to Transylvania, and we go along with Harkness. We're sort of following a person from a civilized world into the world of the, the, the vampires. If you just started writing a novel from the point of view of the vampire, it would be very difficult mm. to do that. Though I think Angela Carter does things like that. I mean, there's a different kind of writing. Yeah. And you're writing now? Well, I'm, the, I'm always the, writing, the, yeah. The Butcher Project, is it... Oh, Butcher, I have, I have a novel that's coming yeah. out next year. That's finished, and it's, yeah. that's coming it's out. It's finished. Yeah, and I don't want to get started on that, because it was 19th century uh, victimization of women by, by the medical profession, by yeah. doctors. Very interesting, yeah. Yeah, I mean, there were three sort of famous or infamous doctors, one of them living in the 20th century. I put them into one hellish person. <laughs> And, uh, Looking forward to a lot, And a lot of what I have in there is literally historical and real. People are going to say, Joyce, you made this up, it's grotesque. But no, it's real. We're looking forward to reading that. Um, Joyce Carol Oates, thank you ever so much for this yeah. conversation. Yeah.